Welcome back to the emdocs.net podcast. I'm Britt Long, and I'm joined by Manny Singh. Today, we're covering an essential procedure, intraosseous, or I.O., access. The original post was released on August 15, 2019. The post begins with some great but really challenging cases. The first case is a 47-year-old male found down on the street with unknown medical history. He's brought in by the EMS crew, actively resuscitated with chest compressions and bag valve mass ventilation. As he's transferred to your resuscitation bay, you instruct your team to place him on the monitor and obtain IV access. The second case is a three-year-old girl who's currently being evaluated in the ED for high fevers and neck stiffness. While your team prepares to obtain labs and IV access, she rapidly decompensates and becomes obtunded. The third case is a two-month male infant who's brought to the ED by his mother, who is in tears, screaming that her child drowned in the bathtub. A rapid evaluation reveals no pulse, no breathing, and no response to stimuli. Your team immediately begins resuscitative measures. The fourth and final case is a 16-year-old female who's brought in by EMS from a burning building that collapsed. She is unconscious but maintaining her airway. She has diffuse burns over 90% of her body, and both lower extremities were crushed by debris. Intravascular access is often necessary in emergency care. Not only does it allow for rapid and bioavailable administration of drugs, fluids, and other therapies, but it also facilitates access to blood and serum for diagnostic tests. This access is usually obtained intravenously through peripheral veins, which can be easily accessed in a majority of patients and can be cannulated rapidly by experienced personnel. However, there are some circumstances where peripheral IV access is not a rapid viable option, such as pediatric patients or patients with poorly visible veins. In cases where peripheral IV access is not possible or can't be done in a reasonable period of time, intraosseous access is a fast, easy, and completely acceptable alternative. Intraosseous access uses a medullary cavity within bones as a non-collapsible vein. These cavities drain into venous channels that exit the bone marrow into systemic circulation, much like peripheral veins. Since the medullary cavity is contained in a rigid structure, it will not collapse in a dehydrated patient and is amenable to administration of vasoactive drugs. Also, since most of our patients have bones, IO access can be obtained in any patient on whom specific boning landmarks can be palpated. In addition, bone marrow aspirates from the cavity can be used for certain diagnostic tests, as will be discussed later. There are some situations where IO access can really shine. The key indications include first, venous access, specifically for infusion of IV fluids and drugs, including vasoactive drugs. You can break these patients down into infants and children less than 12 years age and adolescents and adults over 12 years of age. For infants and children in arrest or severe shock, you can place the IO in the distal femur if they're less than one year of age, or the distal tibia or fibula if they're greater than one year of age. You can also use the proximal tibia in patients of all ages. For adolescents and adults, or those greater than 12 years of age, who are in arrest, severe shock, or conditions where IV access is difficult or impossible, you can place the IO in the proximal humerus, the proximal tibia, or the distal tibia or fibula. You can also place an IO in the sternum with the appropriate equipment. The next indication is diagnostic bone marrow aspiration, but this needs to be performed prior to infusion. Bone marrow aspirates have been shown to provide accurate measures of hemoglobin, sodium, chloride, BUN and creatinine, glucose, 
and serum drug levels. They can even substitute blood for blood cultures and blood type and screen. Keep in mind that white blood cell count, potassium, calcium, and liver function tests are not accurate. Also, use in measuring lactic acid is not well established in the literature. Next, looking at contraindications, there are two absolute contraindications for IO access. The first is a fractured or injured bone at the insertion site. Access here would be ineffective as administered fluid would infiltrate and not enter venous circulation. The second is vascular compromise proximal to the desired site. Similarly, fluid will infiltrate or otherwise not reach systemic circulation. There are a few relative contraindications for IO access. The first is an infection of the overlying soft tissue or bone, such as a case in cellulitis or osteomyelitis. The second is when there is a bone disorder such as osteogenesis imperfecta, osteoporosis, or similar bone disease. And lastly is the presence of a right-to-left intracardiac shunt, which increases the risk of hazardous fat, air, or marrow emboli. There are several important considerations when it comes to IO access. The first one is size. The pink or 15 millimeter catheter can be used in those who are 3 to 39 kilograms. The blue or 25 millimeter device can be used in those who are 40 kilograms and above. Finally, the yellow one is 45 millimeters and can be used in those with excessive tissue. Any medication or fluid given IV can be given IO, including vasoactive drugs. A pressure bag may be used to overcome resistance and has been shown to improve infusion rates. Infusion rates via humeral IO can reach approximately 5 liters per hour with a pressure bag. IV contrast for CT scanning can also be delivered via an IO and has been shown to be comparable to IV contrast provided intravenously in small studies and case reports. However, some angiographic studies involve high pressure contrast delivery, so you need to carefully monitor the site for infiltration after the CT scan. Although there's evidence of rapid drug delivery via an IO that might be comparable to central venous access, some drugs with a short IV half-life might be less effective by the IO route. Adenosine is one of those drugs where the IO is probably not ideal for drug delivery. Awake patients can receive an IO, but infusion into bone marrow is exquisitely painful and appropriate analgesia should be given prior to any infusion through the IO site. Younger kids and infants may not need the battery or impact-driven IO cannula insertion. Finally, sternal IO access should only be performed with specialized devices to avoid intrathoracic injury. Getting onto the procedures, let's first gather the materials needed. It should be noted that many IO insertions in the emergency setting will involve unconscious patients undergoing resuscitation. In these cases, anesthesia is usually unnecessary and insertion can be accomplished without sterile gloves or drapes. Grab an antiseptic site prep, either chlorhexidine or iodine, an IO catheter with stylet and insertion device, either mechanical or manual, an IO lure lock tubing and pressure back for infusions, gauze and tape or specialized dressing to secure the device, and lastly 2% lidocaine with subcutaneous needle and syringes for your conscious patient only. Position the patient and locate the anatomy by palpation, and mark the site if possible. The proximal tibia is the most go-to insertion site. In children, you want to go 2 cm below the tibial tuberosity and 1 cm medial. In adults, you want to go 2 cm medial to the tubular tuberosity and 1 cm above. 
In children, you can also go for the distal tip fib in ages greater than one years of age, aiming one to two centimeters superior to the medial or lateral malleolus. If the child is less than one years of age, go for the distal femur. Aim one to two centimeters superior to the superior aspect of the patella, angling medially or laterally to the midline of the patella. In ages greater than 18 years, the proximal humerus can be used and is an often underutilized site. Aim two centimeters below the acromion process or one centimeter above the surgical neck, which can be palpated on exam. Once a site is selected, Don a mask, eye shield, sterile gown and gloves, and apply a sterile drape or towel to the field. Sterilize the site with an antiseptic prep solution. In an awake patient, anesthetize the site with 2% lidocaine into the skin, subcutaneous tissue, and periosteum. Brace the extremity or site with your non-dominant hand. To avoid needle state injury, do not place your hand immediately behind the insertion site. Next, orient your device with a needle perpendicular to the bone surface. In skeletally immature patients, angle your needle slightly away from this joint to spare the growth plate. Next, you need to insert the IO catheter. With manual devices, apply pressure while twisting back and forth until a decrease in resistance is felt. Avoid rocking motions and note significant pressure may be needed in skeletally mature patients. For spring or impact-driven devices, Follow the device instructions. Usually the device is oriented perpendicularly, followed by activation of the spring with gentle pressure. For battery-driven devices, apply manual pressure briefly to penetrate the subcutaneous tissue and then press and hold the trigger. The IO will twist and penetrate the bone, and the trigger should be released when a decrease in resistance is felt. Once in the medullary cavity, remove the needle stylet or trocar. Confirm placement by physical examination. Look for an upright, immobile catheter and attempt aspiration to aid confirmation and obtain bone marrow for diagnostic tests. In awake patients, it's crucial to infuse 2% lidocaine slowly into the IO catheter for further analgesia. A further 1cc can be given after infusion is begun. Awake children similarly receive smaller doses based on age. Once your placement is confirmed, flush with 10 cc's of normal saline and secure with gauze and tape or specialized dressing. IV tubing can now be attached. A properly placed IO can stand upright on its own and flush without local infiltration. Although aspiration can be useful in confirming placement, it can be unreliable and even a properly placed IO catheter may yield no aspirate. Bedside ultrasound with color Doppler has been used to confirm IO placement with reasonable precision compared to physical exam. Once an IO is no longer required, it can be removed by attaching a 10cc lure lock syringe and pulling the catheter out with a twisting motion. The site should be cleaned, dressed with a sterile gauze, and monitored afterward for signs of infection. Manny, I'm glad you mentioned that because there are several important post-procedural complications. The first one is a fracture, and while fractures are rare complications of IO placement, They're seen more often in patients who undergo multiple IO attempts on the same bone or patients with osteopathies. The next complication is infiltration and compartment syndrome. IO catheters can infiltrate, causing leakage of infusion fluids and drugs that can have potentially devastating effects. There are even case reports of amputation and limb ischemia with IO catheter infiltration. As with any vascular access, an IO must be monitored routinely for infiltration. 
the next complication is infection. This is pretty rare, but it's especially seen in catheters remaining in place for over 24 hours. Remember, IO access is temporary access only. An indwelling IO that's no longer needed for vascular access should be removed as soon as possible. Bleeding is our next complication. As with any invasive procedure, bleeding or even soft tissue damage can occur with placement of an IO. While most common IO access sites aren't really highly vascular, everyone's anatomy is different, and the procedurals should be prepared to apply pressure and otherwise treat any complex bleeding or severe tissue damage after insertion. The next complication is intrathoracic injury, which is a big consideration when using a sternal IO. This complication has mostly been seen in patients who undergo IO access with long catheters not designed for sternal access, especially impact-driven devices. Specialized sternal catheters exist that are designed to access the manubrium only. The next complication is fat embolism. The development of fat or marrow emboli after IO placement is a theoretical risk. Animal models have demonstrated nearly 100% prevalence of fat emboli after IO placement, but there's really unclear clinical significance. If you have a patient who acutely decompensates or has organ ischemia after IO placement, think about fat embolism, but again, this is very rare. The final complication is needle in situ. Unlike flexible catheters, the IO catheter is rigid and can be deformed by unnecessary force or incorrect technique during placement. This might impair the function of the catheter, deposit foreign bodies into tissue, or make catheter removal more difficult. Going back to original cases, let's ask ourselves, do they need an IO? The first case was an adult patient undergoing active CPR with intubation and process. This patient definitely needs an IO. The IO can be placed quickly in the proximal tibia without interfering with compressions while peripheral or central venous access is obtained by other team members. The second case is a young three-year-old female who is likely septic and requires rapid access for fluid and medication infusions. Proximal tibial IO access can be obtained simultaneously with efforts at peripheral or central venous access. Remember if bone marrow can be aspirated, it can be sent for essential diagnostic tests such as pH and blood cultures. The third case was an infant. Access in these cases can be challenging, especially during a resuscitation. Fortunately, this patient can have an IO placed in the distal femur or proximal tibia for immediate administration of fluids and resuscitative drugs. Our last patient was a burn patient where it's challenging to get access for rapid fluid resuscitation. An IO is absolutely indicated in this patient. However, this patient is challenging because the lower extremities have been compromised and the upper extremities are non-ideal in a skeletally immature adolescent. A sternal IO can be placed in the upper manubrium with space allowed for chest compressions until a more definitive access can be obtained. Finally, let's cover some pearls and pitfalls. Patients come in all shapes and sizes. If your patient has excessive subcutaneous or adipose tissue over your preferred site, you may have to choose an alternative site or use the longer catheter. Position the patient for success. Make sure the extremity or site is visible angled advantageously for you and supported. Bed rolls and sheets can be really helpful for you. Avoid needle stick injuries. IO catheters and the stylets or trocars are still sharps and can injure the proceduralist. Make sure your hand is not directly behind the insertion site as a misplaced IO can bypass or completely penetrate the extremity and cause injury. It's very easy to forget to secure an IO during a busy resuscitation. 
Though they don't slip out as easily as an IV, an IO can still fall out. And if it does, replacement likely needs to be in a different extremity to avoid infiltration. Make sure to tape down your IO securely. Communicate all points of IO access to receiving providers. When receiving a resuscitated patient, examine carefully for the presence of an IO on the extremities or the sternum. Finally, the proximal humerus is favored by many practitioners because of its theoretical faster infusion rates and utility in cases of abdomen or pelvic injury or lower extremity compromise. The proximal tibia is frequently easier to palpate and available in patients of all ages. The biggest takeaway is that you should feel comfortable inserting an IO in at least two different sites. That rounds out our summary of this great post on IO access. Thanks for joining us on the podcast and stay tuned for our next episode. Feel free to comment on our site and let us know if you have any feedback. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.